0: Welcome to the Biblical Languages Podcast, brought to you by Biblingo. My name is Nick Mesmer, one of the co-hosts of the podcast, and this is a bonus episode in our series on lexical semantics. When Kevin and I recorded the final episode for this series, it ended up being way too long, but we thought all the content was good, so we decided to break it up into two episodes. In this episode, we talk about the importance of data when doing lexical semantics, as well as common fallacies and objections. And in our next episode, we'll wrap up the series by looking at actual examples from Biblical Hebrew. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Um, so, in the last episode, we started off with uh, just some uh, discussion, kind of summarizing uh, and synthesizing some of the theory and stuff like that, that we talked about, we talked about uh, how important it is to have clarity on what your objective is in doing lexical semantics talked about uh, kind of the two key components of that being identifying a lexical meaning and then identifying contextual meanings. Uh, And then we also talked about the importance of kind of using all the tools that we have at our disposal. not just looking at um, contextual domains and things like that, but also looking at syntax and word classes and and things like that. And so just to kick us off today, I wanted to talk about one other really key element uh, in doing lexical semantics, which is the data. Um, It might seem obvious that data is really important when doing lexical semantics, but I think it's worth talking about because I think it's a little bit more slippery of a thing than we often like to think. so, Kevin, I was just wanting you to kick us off with talking about some of the problems we run into with uh, the data.
1: Yeah, so I think with Hebrew especially, um, this problem is is much more acute um, just because the amount of data we have is just um, minuscule compared to what would be ideal. So, um, as an example, you know, I, I was reading a book on... Um, nominalizations in English. And in that book, they used a corpus of 40 to 50 million words. And um, they said in the introduction, okay, well, you know, just because we have this corpus of 40 to 50 million words, um, you know, doesn't mean that we can conclude um, when we don't see something in the data that that is ungrammatical or doesn't exist, right? So they're saying, well, you know, the argument for, from silence doesn't really apply because we only have, you know, 40 to 50 million words that we're working with here. Um, and, you know, something, some sort of construction could still be grammatical outside of our corpus. Um, if you compare that to Hebrew, right, we have 419,687 words. And that's just a number I got offline. So, right, it could be, uh, you know, a handful more or less than that. But um, that's 1% of... The, the corpus, you know, that was being used in this other study, in a modern linguistics, you know, corpus study. And, you know, combine that with the fact that the Hebrew Bible corpus, you know, spans hundreds of years, right? So, you know, if the, the person using the, you know, English corpus, um, every single text was like hand curated, and, you know, probably within a 10 to 15 year period, right? Um, we're talking about, you know, imagine, including in your corpus, Shakespeare, you know, as well as modern English. I mean, it's prob- probably not um, as drastic of a change. I mean, Hebrew, the Hebrew within the Bible doesn't change as much as Shakespeare to to today, but the but it does change, right? And you, you see significant differences um, between, you know, like archaic Hebrew where you have in, in several passages um, versus late, late biblical Hebrew and so the and then you know compound that with like differences in dialect um variations in you know um where the speaker is coming from you know as far as like his providence and 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 so the the problem with doing corpus studies um you know in in Hebrew is just we we we, we can really conclude nothing if we don't um you know see something that we might you know we might have thought was there,
0: right? Right. So practically, there's a couple issues you run into. One is, you know, if you're if you're doing a study on a particular word and uh, you don't find any occurrence of that word meaning a particular thing, that like the more limited your data, the less uh, you know firm of a conclusion you can draw that the word can't mean that. You know, right, because it, exactly. it might it might mean that if you if you had a larger corpus you're working with. Um, and then the other the other thing you bring up is, you know, kind of w- in any particular analysis, what counts as data or what which data is weighed more heavily? Um, and you know, we saw that come up uh, in, in some of the discussions Nije talked about the concentric circles um, uh, in terms of uh, which which uh, data was more relevant to what he was looking at. And it comes all the way down to like within the Bible itself, like, you know, if you're studying How Paul uses a word, um, is the data in the Gospels just as important as it? And, you know, they might use the word differently. So uh, definitely, definitely slippery um, in that sense as well. Yeah.
1: And just to point out that people, I I see these kinds of arguments made in commentaries all the time. So they'll say something like, oh, well, this construction is never found, um, you know, therefore, or, you know, the word never means this and therefore it can't or whatever. And and the the assumption is, again, that that not finding whatever construction or meaning is relevant. And it's really not right. I mean, that's that's the bottom line um, is that you just you, you don't have the kind of data um, in Hebrew to make those kinds of arguments. It doesn't mean that, you know, we can't make, you know, other kinds of arguments right for for what um, words mean in Hebrew. I mean, I think you can develop a a pretty decent methodology on how to go about analyzing words and we'll, you know, touch on that later. But um, that's not that's not a sound methodology.
0: Right. And, you know, one other thing you can you can kind of uh, make mistakes in both directions. You can um, you can weigh data um, that's maybe on one of those outer concentric circles too heavily, um, like it's too late or too early or in a different corpus or something, but you can also make the mistake of not looking at enough data. You know, I think that's a mistake we can make very easily doing, uh, specifically biblical studies work, um, is just looking at the new Testament, you know, um, and not looking at occurrences in other Greek literature. Um,
1: yeah, for sure.
0: And I mean, and that,
1: you know, is, is true as well to some extent of, you know, Old Testament with um, the Dead Sea Scrolls, you know, you, it, you have to look at every single scrap of data you can get in Hebrew because it's just not there.
0: Yeah, one other issue I think we can run into when it comes to data is even those of us who study Greek and Hebrew often are getting mediated access to the data. Um, looking at lexicons and commentaries, those are good things, but you know, there's even a lot of discussion. I, I hear about this like. You know, encouraging people to go to the primary sources first before they consult lexicons and and uh, commentaries and things like that. But uh, I still think it's an issue of um, of of people having a hard time being able to work with the data uh, well enough to not have to rely so much on lexicons and commentaries. Um, so, yeah, what 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 are some issues you think we run into there?
1: Yeah, I I think. Part of it is, um, well, like you said, part of it is just that we don't know the languages enough um, or well enough to to really grapple with the data. Um, so you know, if 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 you're not comfortable reading the text, um, you know, by itself as a text, then it's very hard. You know, if if you're trying to figure out what a Hebrew word means, like it's very hard. You know, to not go to the lexicon first and go to the data first. Um, so so you know, you have to, you know be a fluent reader really in order to um to really do that kind of work well and efficiently um the other thing is i i think we do um kind of place this um i I don't i don't want to say too heavy of an emphasis on lexicons and commentaries i mean i think they are important but but what we don't realize is that these are written by people (laughs) right um and and people that you know may have struggled with Hebrew, right, may have, um, you know, I mean, they, they they are trying to grapple with the same kinds of questions that we are, right, and so I think that's an important point, right, um, it's something that you learn as a scholar, like, you know, oh, okay, like, these sorts of, you know, these scholarly works are, yeah, they're just written by people um, that may be right and may be wrong, right, um, and, and and I think that's that's for us I, when we go to the lexicon um we often view that oh this is the meaning of the word when in reality that's just an analysis of the meaning of the word right and and it's so easy to kind of slip into this um, this thing where we view the lexicon or commentaries as the authority when in reality the data is the authority right and if you can back it up with data it doesn't matter what the lexicons and commentaries say um, that's, you know, data has to rule, especially in lexical semantics, um, how we how we treat words and how we define them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and there's a, a humility that is good that comes with, um, you know, not assuming that you can necessarily do a better job than whoever wrote the lexicon, you know, but like you said, data rules. And so um, if if you're looking at the data and finding something that, you know, is is a little different than the lexicon, then then that's a good thing. Um. yeah, your uh, comment about just not being comfort- comfortable enough with the, the text. Um, I mean, I just remember like, you know, in my graduate studies, like I would be doing a word study or something. And so I'd be looking, you know, at material like outside the new testament for example of of uses of the word but it's like i couldn't read that material so then i would be like reading a translation of that material and then making conclusions about how the word was used but of course that translation itself is an interpretation of the text and so um you know not to was, mention you know you often
1: will will just read a, a sentence you know right exactly. You're not
0: reading the whole work right right
1: and then saying oh that's a very odd use of that word in this larger context of the entire work right reading it in the original Right. Which is a totally different, you know, thing than picking out a particular word in a specific context that you don't really know. Right. And then reading a translation of it and calling that a word study, you know. um, Yeah, it's just it's just it's just different.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that and that goes back to uh, a big discussion we had on a previous series, our biblical language pedagogy series, where we talked about um, the importance of reading fluency and that being one of the benefits of taking a more living language approach to the languages. Uh, to learning the languages, I remember Christoph Rico talked about um, before he started doing spoken uh, Greek. He had, you know, he, well, he says he had hardly read any Greek, but he, what he meant by that was the whole New Testament. Uh, but he, he he said that it wasn't until he started doing spoken Greek that he actually read um, just a vast amount of of Greek text outside the New Testament. Um,
1: I mean, he he's. I believe he's told me he had read through the New Testament seventy times, so <laughs> yeah. it, it it wasn't
0: like compared to most people, he had a lot of you know uh, yeah. reading experience. Yeah, yeah, but um, yeah, that was that was something that came up a lot in that series. I remember it with Bethany case as well. Just when you're able to read fluently, like like the example you just gave, when you go to those texts that you're not familiar with, like you're not restricted to just one sentence. You can read the whole thing in context and, and get a p- bigger picture of what's going on so I bring that up just to say that the way in which you learn Greek and Hebrew can actually set you up better to um, do uh, lexical semantics um, so I wanted to just talk a little bit about about that and how we're doing that with Biblingo uh, we try not to plug <laughs> Biblingo too much on the podcast but I, it, it's really highly relevant here so I wanted to ask you besides on the one hand, the way we're teaching Greek and Hebrew with Biblingo is for the ultimate goal of developing reading fluency, uh, which, which again sets you up well for doing lexical semantics. But I think what a lot of people don't know is that we've designed Biblingo um, in a lot of other ways to uh, help people tune into some of these linguistic um, features uh, more. So would you, um, would you share some of those things that we've done with the program?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think probably the biggest thing. Um, yeah, you know, so basically, what what we have in there is is our dictionary, right? So we're building out this dictionary, and it and it still needs a lot of work and to be built out more. Um, but one of the things um, you know that we're doing is teaching you know verbs, for example, with with arguments. And so just just to um, explain, I mean, I I use that term a lot, an argument, and a lot of people scratch their head and look at me funny um when I when I say that because they don't know what I mean um so so just just to to clarify you know what 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 is that um, an argument is basically a, a word that completes the thought of another word right so um, if I say hit um, you know we we don't know what hit what right and so so it takes um you know two arguments there has to be you know something that's hit um, and something that hit so, so in that case um, you know those two entities complete the thought of the word hit um, now what's so that's different than something like an adjunct right and an adjunct is not a um it, it, it's it's a meaningful component that's added but it's not necessary right to complete the thought of the um, of the of the word so you know you can hit at the park right um and that's just an adjunct it just tells you just the location of where that event took place. So you're so, saying
0: there a prepositional phrase is an adjunct, not an argument?
1: Correct. There a prepositional phrase is a, an adjunct. Um, now, you have prepositional phrases that act as arguments, right? Um, and that's like a, a um, prepositional complement is what it would be called. But but the point is, um, you know, on the surface, you can't see. You, you, you don't really know what um, whether the, the word takes an argument um, or, you know, wh- whether a certain preposition is an argument or an adjunct until you actually do the the analysis, right? Um, so, for example, um, verbs of touching, right, in Hebrew, naga, it um, takes be normally as an argument um, or, or as, uh, you know, the thing that introduces the argument, right? So, so the idea would be that, um, and this is very normal. In fact, English's um, direct object is, is very abnormal. Uh, it, it can take, a lot of different kinds of of uh, um, relationships between the verb and the argument, and that's that's actually quite uh, quite strange. Um, so you have nagabe, um, and and there's really no reason why. It, so as an English speaker, you would you would probably expect at um, or you know the the direct object, but um, you know what you find in the data most often is be. Um, and so so. The question then is, you know, for the learner, right? You have to, you have to learn that, and what you have to do is you have to link up, um, you know, that syntactic construction to a meaning, right? And that's, and that's the whole, the whole point. And we can get, um, into more of this later when we do some of the examples. Um, one, one of the other things we do is we try to, um like if sometimes certain verbs take or certain senses of verbs take certain kinds of arguments or certain verbs select certain kinds of arguments. So for example, a verb might require an an animate argument or an inanimate argument. Um, So you see this in Greek dictionaries, um, like in BDAG, for example, it'll say T or Tina, right? Where T is animate and um, Tina is animate. Um, So, so we do this with the second person because second person is always animate. Um, Whereas Tina would not always be in it, um, so if if the second person argument, then the idea is that um, that sense requires an animate argument. So it's just it 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 um if you don't have that second or that animate argument, then you don't have that sense, right? It doesn't mean that the the verb you know necessarily takes that that uh, that kind of argument, right? But only for that sense, and so and so that's that's one of the and, and that kind of brings me to the last point is, is linking up um, senses with syntax, right? Um, and this is a, a, again, you know, like we talked about last time, there's a huge area of study um, that really has not been applied very much within biblical studies is to say, okay, um, how, how can syntax help us to determine the meaning of a word in context? Um, and again, it, it just, there are syntactic clues. Um, you know, I, I can think of, you know, th- there are many, um, in, in English, you know, for example, um, you know, the difference between h- hits, hitting someone and hitting at someone, you know, if, if, um, you're hitting at someone, you're not necessarily hitting them. Right. Um, and, 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 we have this, when we hear the difference between those two things, we immediately know, um, you know, it, we can see in our, in our mind's eye, right. The, the actual difference in the world, right. We can say like, oh, the hitting kind of event is different than a hitting at kind of event. Um, but that's the kind of thing that hasn't been done enough in, in Hebrew or Greek um, studies to kind of like flesh out the, how, how the whole, the whole system works together, right? Um, with the prepositions. What, what do these prepositions mean? How do they interact with um, the verbs and um, how does that create, you know, meaning differences when, when, You know, you would use one preposition or the other, or you'd use, you know, um, accusative case versus genitive case, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And just just to um, talk a little bit about how this works practically, like in our dictionary, you know, for example, we present verbs with their arguments. But with that, when you're going through lessons or flashcards, for example, learning vocabulary, when you learn a word like Naga in Hebrew um, to touch, you learn it with the argument so the actual vocabulary item that you're learning is naga be and um you know what that does i've had people like in the app ask like why does why does it have be um because before they realize that this is what we do. But um, it, it, so so they ask, why does it have be? Like, wouldn't that mean something like touch in, you know, or something like that? And, <laughs> and so one, it, it it tunes you into where Hebrew and English are different and it just wouldn't be right to actually translate the, the be preposition that way right there. Right. Um, but what it, what it does is it alerts them to that up front so that when they do get into a text and they see naga be something, they're not, trying to translate it you know within or something like that it's just part of the word and its syntax to them um so again it's it's developing sensitivities to certain syntactical structures um just from the very beginning uh vocabulary acquisition and yeah and then similarly with the sense sense divisions um again you're learning different senses of words as different vocabulary items and so if a word has one sense when it takes an animate object in another sense when it has an inanimate object you're learning those as two different vocabulary items because they they have different senses different meanings um and so then when you see it again in a text with an animate object you're not having to like shuffle through maybe different you know meanings in your head it's like you've you've already associated a specific meaning with that word when it takes that argument um because of the way you learned it as vocab so um yeah again it's just very very practically developing these sensitivities from, you know, day one of learning Greek and Hebrew for you. Now, uh, moving toward jumping into some specific examples. Um, but yeah, as we're talking about data and how to analyze it, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, just some problems we run into with word studies and even um, objections you hear a lot to actually doing uh, word studies. And um, so, yeah, what, what are some of the, the, the issues that we can run into?
1: I think one of them is something that I see quite a bit. Um, for some reason, I, I feel like I see it more within Hebrew than Greek. Um, but it's it's this idea. Um, really, really, I think it's a logical error. Um, not so much a, an error in, in doing word studies. But it's that potential meaning does not mean the word has a specific meaning and context. So the idea is that, you know, Again, if you go to the the dictionary and you say, okay, it can mean these three different, you know, it has these three different senses, um then then how do we decide in a particular context what that word means? Um and and just because it can mean something doesn't mean it means that in this context, right? Um so, you know, an example of this um you know, kind of like a theologically uh like difficult example is Walton. He you know John Walton wrote a book on um, the lost world of the Israelite conquest, right? And hey, and he makes this... tread
0: tread tread lightly. He was uh, a dear professor of mine. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm I'm treading as lightly as I as I can. Um, so
1: um, he makes this argument about Hecherim, where um, basically the word doesn't mean. Um, you know, devote to destruction. Like, doesn't mean that, you know, these people actually died, right? Um, so, so it is true, right? That that I mean, I think there there are legitimate examples where, um, you know, whatever, uh, whenever this action takes place, that people don't die, right? Um, but that doesn't mean that, um, it is true in these contexts or in every context, right? And so, and so then then. What we have to do is we have to ask ourselves, okay, what kinds of contexts would lead to that interpretation? What kinds of contexts would lead to the other interpretation? And then, what kinds of contexts do we have here, right? Um, and and I, I mean, personally, I think that the kinds of contexts you have um, are are pretty clear. You know, destruction, right? Um, you know, people people die, right? Um, and and so, but but the the lexical point here is that. Um, you don't you don't actually get to pick and choose, you know, sort of like what meaning. And I'm, and I'm not saying that, you know, Walton does this so um, so blatantly, um, but but you, you you, do have to be careful um, about, you know, when when a word can mean something, um, not to implant that into a specific context. Right. It, it, it doesn't mean very much to say that it can mean that right it just you're just showing um how far the word can go and then you have to prove that that context demands that interpretation
0: yeah yeah i, I think that is a a really big error that especially um students or people who are newer to greek and hebrew can make uh, again i mean i just know as a student like that temptation was there like kind of have like I knew what I wanted the word to mean and then if I could find that in the lexicon then I knew I could go with that that option kind of confirmation bias um, but yeah so you know even just thinking again about the process determining lexical meaning determining con- contextual meanings but then with with each particular you know um, occurrence of the word you have to do the work of uh, you know um, determining which contextual meaning is best supported, you know, in that particular text. So, yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I, there's a, a an issue I think we can run into something I hear a lot um, is, you know, saying that, oh, well, this Greek or Hebrew word literally means, you know, insert English word. Um, what, what is the issue with that kind of talking? Yeah. So, um, it's it's nonsense is
1: is the the first issue, <laughs> um. So the problem, here's the problem, right? Is um. Is the the Greek word does not literally mean any English word, right? And so that's an arbitrary or the Hebrew word, right? Um, that's an arbitrary choice that you make to link, um, um, you know. The that Hebrew word to a particular English word, right? Um, and it's often done on the basis of, of just in, in, incomplete analyses of both Hebrew and English, right? So, so this, this actually does require you to know the English word very well um, because, you know, for example, you know, people do this all the time with, like, fear, right? Um, the fear of God, right? Um, well, like, you, you have to really do your homework um, on what fear means in English, and then what fear means in hebrew to determine whether they really are a one to one match and i mean i'll go ahead and say like they're not a one to one match right there there are no english words that match um you know yare perfectly and so the problem is you when you say um it literally means fear like why are you priori- why are you yeah prioritizing or or suggesting that that this particular english word um, is a better fit than another particular English word, right? Like, what evidence do we have for that? Um, an example of this that I discovered while doing my dissertation um, is the word judge. It's, it's pretty fascinating. So if you look at judge, the English word, in the Oxford English Dictionary, they have a sense, I think it's sense like 14 or something, there's a ton of them, um, where they say it means to rule, but only when translated from the Bible. Right, so there are only a few places in the English language where "judge" means "rule," and it's only when it's being translated from another language, right? Which begs the question: Okay, maybe "judge" doesn't mean "rule," right? Um, I mean, it doesn't; it doesn't have that sense. If, if you know, a normal English speaker wouldn't use it in that way. Um, and so, so what, what, what that's obviously showing us, right, is that um, the people have equated shafat um the the verb being used here right in hebrew with judge and then they have assumed that that's a one to one correlation that shafat literally means judge and so every time they see shafat they put it in judge right um i i don't even think that's the best it's, it's not the best english word um for shafat but um the you can see the obvious problem right when you say it literally means a word um you know you are prioritizing an english word
0: that that doesn't uh, perfectly fit yeah so pro- a better thing to say would probably be i think you know this english word is probably the closest equivalent to this hebrew word because x y and z yeah you know, right because i think right. you talked uh with i think it was will ross about you know the issue of the ambiguity in english clauses. you know so yeah you have to be clear about um about both both words um yeah so uh A couple other big uh, issues that come up, a couple word study fallacies we can run into are the root fallacy and uh, illegitimate totality transfer. And I don't know if we want to spend so much time on these because I think they're actually kind of talked about more uh, than some of the other ones. But one, I feel like we can't uh, talk about word study fallacies without (laughs) bringing them up. Um, So do you want to maybe just quickly define these for us? And uh, if you have any comments on them? Well, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll let Carson define them um, to
1: just from his exegetical fallacies book. Um, and we'll, you know, discuss which parts I think are true and which parts are need, need to be revised. So this is what he says about the root fallacy. He says the root fallacy presupposes that every word actually has a meaning bound up with its shape or components. In this view, meaning is determined by etymology that is by the root or roots of a word. Um, so I, I think these are actually two different statements, right? So to say that um, every word actually has a meaning bound up with its shape or components, I think is actually correct, right? that 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 every word does indeed have a meaning that's bound up by with its shape or components. So 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 the only way you can get to the meaning of a word um, is by looking at its components and how they're put together. Um, that's just how it works. that's all that's all you have. Um, again, this is not to say, that um you know when the the example we used with Greek, right, was exhistemi. And it's not to say that um that, that word must mean stand out, right? Um because the the Greek word doesn't literally mean stand, right? And ek um or histamine doesn't literally mean stand. And ek doesn't literally mean out, right? And and it can when and when they're combined, um we have this special meaning that occurs um but but we know that 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 is actually related to the components right like um we can we can see the connection between standing out and you know being crazy or amazed or um whatever right um
0: yeah i think the example the english example that's given a lot for this is butterfly right like you know you can't you can't say that you know the meaning of butterfly is something like butter like you know flying but you know and, and so the the fallacy is when you um you kind of say the entire meaning perhaps is like bound up with the meaning of those in two individual words butter and fly but it is true that that the meaning of butterfly actually is related to those two individual words i mean i, I literally just like w- while you're talking googled the etymology of butterfly and uh it says it's from old english um and uh possibly from an old belief that the insects stole butter <laughs> so like it, it is actually related to those two uh root words well
1: well and and that would be my point right is and, and, and this is the second thing that he says he says in this view meaning is determined by etymology which is a different thing right historically we can say right there, there was a point in time in which you know we can see the components um clearly right it, it's not necessarily the case that we can we can always see those right because words change over time, right? So so um if a word changes, then we might not be able to you know see how it's related to the root. But but that doesn't mean that when the words were originally formed by speakers, there was no connection to the root, right? And that's and that's crucial. So so and 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 it's true though, right? That he says that meaning is not determined by etymology, right? That's that's and. That that here we're looking historically. We can't say that um, because this word meant something, you know, um, during Shakespeare's time, that it necessarily means something the same thing today, right? And in fact, like the whole point of this of etymological um, sort of reasoning, um, you know, is that it is that it it says like, well, this is like the truer meaning, right? But in actuality, the the true meaning is the synchronic meaning for that language community um, so how they're using the word now is its meaning um, so so again it, it it doesn't mean that we can always um that we can always look at it, the components of a word and see that um you know and, and, and native speakers can't always detect how those things combine and to form the meaning we have but it does mean that at some point in the history of the word Um, that was possible because those two words wouldn't have been put together um in that way if they they didn't equal you know whatever the output
0: was right right yeah yeah that makes sense now illegitimate totality transfer well i've seen this one actually talked about a lot among people who study greek and hebrew i mean i feel like it's it's got to be one of the most committed fallacies i mean maybe you know from the pulpit i would say um so, yeah, why don't you define that one for us and talk a little bit about it?
1: Yeah. Um, so, I'll, I'll go back to Carson again. It's um, So, he defines it as the supposition that the meaning of a word in a specific context is much broader than the context itself allows and may bring with it the word's entire semantic range. So, basically, the idea is that, okay, I go to the dictionary and I see, you know, this word, it has five different senses. And so then, in this particular context, um, it means all five things, right? Um, that's just that's just not how words work, right? Um, yeah. So, so an example in English that we we talked about yesterday was um, break up, right? Um, so, so if you um, say, you know, she broke up with him after ten years, right? Um, we know immediately what that means, and and we do not. In our heads, conjure up the meaning of, um, you know, whoever she is, pulverizing him into small pieces, right? So, so if I say I, I like broke up my my son's pill into tiny bits so that he could swallow it, um, that that is like again doesn't conjure up the the idea of you know a girl or a guy cutting off a relationship right and so, so so these things when when we when one sense is activated in our heads we we aren't thinking of the other senses right and and that's the important point is that um you if you look at a dictionary and 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 part of this depends on how you define senses and how you're parsing out um you know the differences here but but the the point is that if if there are two legitimately separate senses the word is not is not going to um, give you both at the same time. And, and we really, we really treat them as completely separate things, um, in our heads, even though phonologically they are identical, right? And and that's the key, right? Is that they can be identical phonologically, like, it, like sound wise, they're the same. Um, but we, we act like they're completely separate words.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. I think, I think this is another one that, uh, Is tempting because of the theological um, insights that can come from it. If you can kind of fit multiple meanings into a word in in any given context, you can kind of say more about what's going on theologically. Um, I have a a a quote here from Doug Moo, um, where he said that you should give any word the least amount of meaning necessary to explain it in its context, recognizing that very seldom in ordinary human speech, do we intend double meaning when we use a word? Uh, And of course, like you have to be sensitive to, you know, literary genre, like, you know, in poetry, double meaning is perhaps more common. And so this isn't like a a hard and fast rule, but I, I do think it's a good caution that in ordinary not just human speech but also in ordinary human um you know literature uh usually we're we mean one thing you know uh, at any given time so it's a good a good caution there um okay any other um problems or objections towards studies you would like to to touch on here yeah i think
1: um one that's uh, i i see a lot more for whatever reason in um, studies in the new testament but it's it's the idea that words are entirely context dependent um and i don't i don't really understand where where this like is coming from philosophically um but but here's an example from from Calvin Rowe and he's not the only one that i've i've seen say this um so i don't want to particularly pick on him <laughs> um but but here's what he says he says since words receive their meaning from their larger semantic context i am somewhat skeptical of the usefulness of precise definitions they are liable to skew the reading of sentences for the sake of words whose definitions are supposedly separable from the context in which they occur right so if you if you read this as a philosophical statement on how you know words make meanings um what you would conclude is that you know words don't have meaning apart from the context which means that they there are they don't have any contribution to the context and you know the entire enterprise of trying to figure out a particular meaning a particular contribution of that morpheme is is pointless right um the, the the problem is that when when we have words um you know outside of context um then you know we do we do have an idea of what they mean um we can describe them um, the other problem is that words are limited in the kinds of contexts that they appear in, right? We can't, we can't put a word in any kind of context and, and, and we should be able to, if they, if they are receiving their meaning only from the context, there's no reason why we couldn't put, um, you know, a particular word in any context and, and then expect that word to mean whatever the context demands it means. Right, but that's not the case. What what is the case is that words are constrained, like their 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 meanings um constrain the kinds of context that they allow for, right? Um which shows that they, they actually do have a meaning, right? And I used this example yesterday. Um, you know, I can't just say um the vase hit. It just doesn't work, right? I can say the vase broke, right? And and so and so that's a difference in meaning um that that affects the kinds of contexts that we will see those two different words in.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, uh, it just goes back to the importance of lexical meaning versus contextual meaning and, and understanding that lexical meaning is the meaning that, that the word contributes to any context. And I, I think that's key. Um, cause it's not to say that like the lexical meaning is like, the true or meaning, you know, versus contextual meanings or, or anything like that. But it, it's, it's realizing that the reason that particular word was chosen in every a, a place that it, you know, in which it was chosen by a native speaker, like there's a reason it, 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 it was chosen by native speakers across all these contexts. And it's because it, it contributed something to those contexts. The, the, the native speaker thought, what is the best word to use here to communicate what I want to say? And they picked that word because it contributed something, you know. And again, it takes on different meanings and nuances in different contexts, but it does, in fact, contribute something. And it really, yeah. If if if, if there is no re- like lexical meaning, I mean, you just can't have it. it you would be there's saying there's no meaning. There's no context, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, because exactly. you're saying that because... about every word in the context, right. You know, you're right, starting right. From, every single with zero. word is
1: dependent upon every single <laughs> other word, and there's yeah. no there's no foundation, yeah, right.
0: Yeah, yeah, but even even I, I think even if you don't um, kind of affirm that that proposition explicitly that words are entirely context dependent, I think still, and we've talked about this, there's still a tendency to um, to emphasize context over and above lexical meaning or syntax and things like that in biblical studies, and so I think it's a good caution um, in general. But with that, I think there's there's one more thing I wanted to talk about here. Um, and it's, it it is this like discomfort that people, I think, at least in biblical, uh, studies have with, um, saying that a word does have a core meaning or a lexical meaning that like an invariable meaning that doesn't change from context to context. Um, what do you think is behind that kind of, um, reluctance to, um, yeah to acknowledge that there is such a thing as an invariable meaning for a word
1: yeah yeah it's it's interesting because in in my own work i've i've gotten a lot of pushback on on this issue um you know whenever i'm introducing you know uh, my semantic theory for an analysis i have i you know always say well i'm i'm assuming that meaning is compositional and what i mean by that is um, you know that the the meaning of a of a complex expression is determined by the meaning you know of um the complex expression's parts and how they combine, right? And that's that's really foundational to the entire program of semantics. Um, you know, like I said, with um, especially formal semantics. Um, so so yeah, it's it, it is interesting. I think part of the problem is um, just that people don't read formal semantics. Um, you know, if, if you're if you're a biblical scholar, like you're almost certainly going to to go to cognitive um, linguistics first, and and um, cognitive semantics, which is fine. Um, I mean, I, I, but I don't think that they're necessarily in competition. I think they're they're a lot of times doing something different. Um, but but when you don't do that, you don't see this perspective of building meaning, um, in syntax, right? Um, you don't you don't see how. Um, you know, I mean, I think a great example um, is with verb frame languages and satellite frame languages that we talked about um, in the last episode, or, yeah, in the last episode, um, a little bit with Greek and then also with Karen, is just um, when, when, when we have seen in the language um, that, you know, you don't have these sorts of constructions like, you know, waltz um, to the house, right? If you don't have that, um, then then we would expect right um, there to be a difference you know potentially either in the um, either in the meaning of the verb in in one language or the other or in the meaning of the preposition right like that that's if only if though we would only expect that if the the um, if meaning is compositional right if if the reason why in one language we can say it, um, is because the preposition means one thing and it combines with with that verb right so 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 you know if if the preposition gives you the path right in English um, then it should be able to combine with with things that don't give you a path um, if the preposition doesn't give you a path like in biblical Hebrew um, then in theory it should not be able to combine with with um, you know verbs that only give a manner and that's exactly what we see right and so so the data, Suggests this that that um, you know the fact that you you actually have state of uses of of um, you know all these prepositions in Hebrew el, mean um, the directional hey, right there are state of uses of that there are not state of uses of two in English right um, and that suggests a meaning difference and and you can see how that affects um, the whole system right and and that is you know. I mean, I, I think one of the, one of the best sort of, sorts of arguments for compositionally, co- compositionality is just, um, you know, the, the kind of um, proof is in the pudding argument, right? Um, we actually do see a difference in how Hebrew and English behave. And, and we only see that if we assume that meaning is compositional, that the, that the preposition, that the meaning of the whole verb phrase is going to be a combination of the meaning of the verb plus the meaning of the preposition.
0: Right. Yeah. And and I think it's it's just one of those things that you have to um, be balanced on because the, uh, language is obviously extremely complex. It changes over time. Uh, it's flexible in a lot of ways. Um, but like you're talking about in some ways, language can be kind of, w- would you say like mathematical? Um, oh, it's, <laughs> there's
1: a reason why, you know, there's a reason why MIT has the best linguistics program in the world. Right. Um, I mean, there's just, and that's the reason. And there's a reason why there are so many mathematicians um, working in linguistics. Right. Um, And, and again, this is not to say, right. I mean, there are loads and loads of, um, you know, sorts of like problems that people bring up. Oh, what about idioms? And what about all these other things? Well, I mean, uh, you know, these people at MIT are not idiots, right? They've thought of these things, right. And they have, and they have intelligent answers for them. Right. And there's all kinds of nuances we can bring to the table here. Um, but, but at the end of the day, we don't want to throw out a theory that works, um, 98% of the time, right. For the 2%, which we might be able to explain in a different way. Right. And, and, and that's, that's the issue is that we see compositionality working. We see like, you know, the cat meaning cat plus the right all the time. Right. And so, so we don't want to just throw out that principle, um, because, you know, there are. Potential counterexamples, right? And and this is part of what we're doing in semantics, right? When we see those counterexamples, we want to say, okay, well, what what is it about this context that that might be leading me to this interpretation that's different, right? Um, and, and what what kinds of hypotheses hypotheses can I make that you know would would help me to explain the data better, right? While while I hold to my principles that, um, again, work for me ninety eight percent of the time, right? And I say ninety eight percent of the time only to say that there are the two the percent is often the two percent that I'm, I'm not saying is impossible to explain. it's difficult to explain, right? it's not to say that that, that you know well we're just we're just capturing part of the data um, but but it's it's the part that we struggle with, right um, and, and and that's just part of you know good theory building in general honestly
0: yeah and the, and that it just goes back to the importance of the data and our analyses being driven by the data and constrained by the data. like it's fair, you know to say, like you know in a a certain sense like this must mean this or this can't mean this because of the data all right and that is all we have for this bonus episode thanks for listening and we hope you enjoyed this episode of the biblical languages podcast brought to you by Biblinko.